song says that the deep, deep love of Jesus is the love of every loves the best, and that it lifts us up to glory. It is a heaven of heavens. This morning we'll consider the uh, Song of Songs, or as might be listed in your Bibles, the Song of Solomon, um, in which we see that very thing. The church fathers, the uh, reformers and Puritans, they used to speak of that book as the, the holy of holies because it is that place where we uh, see the very thing of which we just sang, that love which is of every loves the best and our hearts are lifted up to heaven to behold the love of the bridegroom. Now, before we turn there, however, we'll read first a New Testament reading from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 Read verses 25 through 32, where it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For you are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. You can turn in the Old Testament to Song of Songs, chapter 2. We'll read verses 8 through 17, section that has been called one of the loveliest poems in all the world's literature, Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. says, the voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. My beloved spoke. And said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. And the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs, the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one. And come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch us, the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved, is mine and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. 
Return, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. Beloved Martin Luther once compared the gospel to a royal marriage where a rich and divine bridegroom takes a poor, undeserving girl and adorns her with his goodness. He takes upon himself the things that are hers, and he bestows upon her the things that are his, condescending to join her to himself, that she might be able to say, my beloved is mine, and I am his. That royal condescension by which such an invitation is given is the theme of our passage this morning. A royal bridegroom condescends, leaping over the mountains, skipping over the hills, to invite this unassuming, sun-tanned country girl who we meet in chapter 1 to be his bride. So that by the end of our passage, she might be able to say, My beloved is mine, and I am his. There is an unfolding plot to this song where the the first movement in uh, chapter 1, verse 2 through 2, verse 7 is one of of desire, one of anticipation and and longing to be together where the the bride-to-be and the king speak to one another of their, their affection and desire for one another. By the time we get to chapters 3 and 4, the king will arrive on his wedding day and the marriage will be consummated. But here, before we get to that, is the request, the proposal, the the stunning invitation to receive him on the wedding day and enjoy that sweet consummation, being united with him in love. So look with me this morning first at the king's coming, verses 8 and 9. Then the king's call, verses 10 through 16, and finally the king's coming again in verse 17. The king's coming, the king's call, and the king's coming again. Verse the king's coming. We see the bride to be rejoicing in verse 8 at the voice of her beloved. She rejoices at his coming and says, Behold, he, he comes. He's leaping on the mountains. He's he's skipping over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Boys and girls, maybe um, you enjoy learning about animals. Maybe you've seen a video of of a gazelle before or you've maybe had the chance to see one at the zoo. How fast they run. How far they jump. Solomon, the king, is here being described as as running to pursue his bride-to-be with the speed of a gazelle. He's, He's said to be leaping over the mountains. He's excited to see her. Nothing can stop him from pursuing her. He is committed and determined to find her. And she's apparently far off in the country at the home of her mother and her brothers behind that wall that's described in verse 9. She's far off. But he comes to her. And he comes longing. He comes looking through the window, gazing through the lattice. Not inappropriately, as if he's, he's spying on her, but, but as one who's waiting to, to just catch a little glimpse of his beloved. The king wants to see her. He, he wants to be with her. 
He wants to gaze upon her and behold with his eyes the one that he loves. And so he comes longing and he comes leaping. And the fact that he does come leaping as a gazelle not only indicates his longing and loving commitment, but, but it also indicates that the time to awaken love has drawn near. Perhaps you um, this morning or last night read the, the passage that, that's going to be preached. Maybe you even went above and beyond and you, you read the whole chapter to get a bit of context. If, if you did, you would have seen in uh, 2 verse 7, one of three places where there is this, this repeated refrain throughout the book where um, in the midst of their, their affectionate speech towards one another, the, the bride-to-be will s- turn to the, the daughters of Jerusalem and, and say to them, I adjure you, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. And if you look at 2 verse 7, you notice that she adjures them by the, the gazelles of the field not to awaken love until it pleases, not to, to stir up these affections before the proper time. And so she has just adjured them by the gazelles of the field not to stir up or awaken love. And now, just a couple of verses later, he is, he is leaping as a gazelle. So against the, the backdrop of 2 verse 7, we see that the time... To awaken love is upon them. As he says in verses 11 and 12, spring has come. The proper God-ordained time to awaken love has arrived. And for those who are are waiting for such a a time to come, this is just a a simple little reminder that it will come soon enough. We see even in, in the image that she uses to describe him, an encouragement in waiting as you seek to pursue purity. It's, it's not that those desires can never be fulfilled, but there is a context in which the desires that God has given may be fulfilled. That's what we see in these verses. The king is coming with the intention of requesting her hand in marriage. He's coming with the intention of proposing that the desires that have been expressed by both of them in chapter 1, the first six verses or seven verses of chapter 2, would be fulfilled. And so he comes not only longing and leaping, but he also comes speaking. Notice it is the voice of the king in which she rejoices. Not just his leaping, not just his longing, but the desires of his heart that are expressed in words. The royal bridegroom comes to speak with her. As we see first the king's coming, now the king's call as she describes the words of her beloved, the voice in which she delights, saying, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. He says, lo, that the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, spring is upon us. The flowers are blooming. The birds are singing. He's saying love is in the air. He asks, verse verse 13, do you you smell it? Love is in the air. He says again, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And so in case we missed his request in the midst of all of this, this flowery poetry, he says it a second time, come away with me. In the poetic narrative that is unfolding throughout this song, this is the request for her hand in marriage. And this is not 
an invitation for some sort of premarital rendezvous, but he, he wants her to leave the home of her father and mother, those walls that separate them in verse 9 and come to the other side, or the gazelle are leaping. And this is language of leaving and cleaving, come away with me. He's saying that the flowers are emerging from the soil, the, the birds are emerging with their song, and yet there is one thing that has not yet emerged. He says that the, the bride-to-be has not emerged from the cleft of the rock in verse 14, but she is, is hiding in the secret place of the cliff. And the king longs to see her face. He longs to hear her voice, for it is sweet and her face is lovely. The way it's interesting how so far in, in the book, if you, you look back into chapter 1 and, and here into chapter 2, so far in the book, all of his, his comments on her appearance have, have been above the neckline. In chapter 1, he speaks of her, her cheeks and her neck in verse 10, her, her eyes in verse 15. Here he speaks of her face. I think this reminds us that one of the ways to, to heed the, the counsel of the bride-to-be and not awaken love before the proper time is to not comment on or dwell upon those other parts of the body. But he will save that for the wedding night in chapter 4, as should we. At this stage of the song, he keeps his comments above the neck. He praises her beauty. He praises her voice which is sweet. He invites her to leave and cleave and, and come away to join him in marriage, leaving the house of her mother and her brothers to establish a new home. And as they look to establish this new home, I want you to notice what he calls her. She says in verses 8, 9, and 10, my beloved, he calls her in verse 10, verse 13, my, my love. But in the Hebrew, um, he, he's actually the one who's being referred to as the lover, not the, the beloved. He's, um, he's, he's active here rather than, than passive. And what he calls her is not simply my love, but, but is a Hebrew word that, that has the idea of a friend. It's a, it's a term of endearment that implies deep affection and, and heartfelt companionship. Perhaps some of you have read a little, little book on marriage by Joel Beakey. I think the title of that book gets, gets well at, at what this is, is describing. He, his book is called Friends and Lovers, um, Cultivating Companionship and Intimacy in Marriage. Solomon is here emphasizing companionship. He is honoring and exalting her. Not only in the respect that he shows her in, in his reserved comments with regard to her appearance... But also, and perhaps especially in the name that he gives her, he calls her my friend. What one writer calls one of the highest expressions of love and praise when a husband simply calls his wife friend. He is not objectifying her, but he is dignifying her. He is not viewing her as, as less than him, but equal, as, as in that line often attributed to Matthew Henry, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be loved. This idealized king in the Song of Songs understands what it means to love his bride-to-be. 
He's ready to enact 1 Peter 3, 7, living with his wife in an understanding way and showing her honor. But I want you to notice what we see then in verse 15, where after this proposal, after this invitation to to come away, where he he speaks affectionately and, and appropriately to her, we read these interesting words in verse 15, where it says, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines or the the vineyard, for our vineyards or or vines have tender grapes. There's a couple of things about this verse. Um, First of all, who's the speaker? You might have noticed as as we were reading all of these headings that are are provided, the the Shulamite, that's that's a reference to the the bride-to-be or uh, the king or the the beloved. Verse 15 there, the New King James... um, provides a heading or superscription that says um, the, the brothers. I think it's sort of a curious um, addition there. I don't believe there are any other English translations that, that do that there at verse 15, but, but most of them take the speaker here either to be a, um, a continuation of the king's proposal or, or the, the bride's response. One of them, either the bride-to-be or the king himself, is, is saying, if we are to leave and cleave and, and become one flesh, then there are certain things that need to happen first. A marital love has so far in the book been described as wine. Um, right out the gate in, in chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 1, verse 4, where, where his love is, is said to be better than wine. In chapter 2, verse 4, um, she wants to go to his house of wine. I think some translations... Uh, speak of that as his, his banqueting house or his banqueting table, but that's literally, in 2 verse 4, his, his house of wine. And so throughout the book thus far, and, and uh, more later on, the, the um, uh, marital love that they're describing, the desired affection they're speaking of, is, is described in, in terms of wine. Not incidental, actually, I think, as we, we jump ahead to the New Testament, we see Jesus, his very verse, first miracle is, is at a a wedding where he turns water in, into wine. I think all of those biblical theological connections are not incidental either as we think about the very elements that Jesus points in the Lord's Supper. He gives us wine to drink. That, that uh, sweet and intoxicating wine which gives us a little taste, a little preview of, of the joy of that marriage union that we will enjoy with him in, in kingdom come. He says in Matthew 26, we will not drink wine Again with him until we drink it in his father's house. That's an aside, though. Um, as we think about this, this wine theme here in, in the song that we see in chapters 1 and 2 and, and later on, um, now in 2 verse 15, it's, it's speaking in the context of a marriage proposal of tender grapes that are ready to be harvested from their vineyards. You see that same theme from chapters 1 and 2 being picked back up. But, but then, either the bride or the, the king say that if they are to enjoy such a sweet harvest, they first need to catch the foxes that would spoil the vineyards. Um, anything that may hinder the relationship and, and ruin the blossoming of their love. And so this verse here speaks of those real threats to marriage that are present in this fallen, sinful world. And petitions the listeners to help them curtail those forces that may be obstacles to their union. Do you notice it doesn't just say, help us catch the foxes. 
but it says the little foxes. In other words, not just the big things, but, but also the little things need to be addressed for their long-term impact on the harvest of marital wine can be significant. And so just as a word even to, to those thinking about or pursuing marriage, uh, this, is, this is why your, your elders um, in, insist, I hope, on, on some course of premarital preparation before you get married. Because there are conversations that need to, to take place. There, there are issues that need to be worked through. Perhaps overbearing parents who might make it hard to leave and cleave. Maybe theological disagreements like are we going to baptize our, our children? Perhaps uh, past or, or, or current sexual sin and addiction. Sexual abuse and trauma. These are things that need to be worked through. And you can't see it in, in the English, but, but the verb catch in verse 15 has a, a second person plural subject in, in the Hebrew. So it's as if they're saying, if they maybe lived in the, the southern United States, uh, y'all catch for us the foxes. Um, Ian Duguid says, given the, the community that, that hovers in the background of this song, the Daughters of Zion, that are, are constantly referred to, this is a recognition that, that this is not an individual decision, but a community project. Um, Phil Riken says, getting ready for marriage requires the assistance and oversight of people who know what they're doing. They are here asking the wider community of faith, the, the fox catchers, if you will, to help protect their purity, to help protect their well-being, to help protect the reputation of the gospel that is attached to Christian marriage. Riken says every relationship needs wise protection. For manipulation or physical and emotional abuse or sexual sin with all of the damage that these things can cause. He says a promising romance is too precious to squander and too difficult for any couple to figure out themselves. It takes the wise and prayerful support of the wider Christian community to catch the little foxes that spoil the vineyards of love and may prevent a romance from ever bearing fruit. This is a call for those looking toward marriage to seek out mature spiritual guidance, not to sweep things under the rug, but rather to unearth the foxes. Not to think, for instance, my, my sexual addiction will work itself out in marriage. I can just redirect it toward my spouse. No, there are significant issues that need to be worked through. With that example, you're dealing with, with two categorically different kinds of desires. Or not to think that, that his domineering and bullying tendencies will, will simply go away or, or her mistrust and jealousy will vanish. When looking through the rose-colored glasses of love, we have blind spots. We have things we don't see. And so we need the church to help us identify them. You need to invite your, your families to, to help you identify them so that you can enjoy a fruitful harvest of marital wine and, and better comprehend in your enjoyment of that marital love that which marriage is meant to depict. The covenantal union of verse 16. She says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And this verse speaks of mutual belonging. 
This verse speaks of of exclusivity. I'm his and he's mine and we belong to no one else. It it speaks of of safety and and love and joy and intimacy, all of which is is described in this covenant language of verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. I mentioned earlier that uh, refrain that comes up three times throughout the book. Don't stir up or awaken love before the proper time. This is the other refrain that is repeated three times throughout the book. My beloved is mine and I am his. When something like that is repeated so often throughout a book as as we're we're trying to to, um, listen and and have literary ears that that follow the the melodic line of of the book, when when something is repeated that often, it's it's signaling to us this, this is apparently rather important for understanding the message and meaning and movement of the book. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Does that phrase sound a little bit familiar, almost like it echoes some other covenant refrain that we hear throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible? My beloved is mine, and I am his. Uh, So often in the scripture, we hear those words that sound an awful lot like that, I will be your God. And you will be my people. That is the covenant refrain that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And here that the spirit-inspired author of scripture is, is evoking that same language. Evoking the language of the covenant of grace to describe the intended goal of the bridegroom's proposal. And the reason why he's doing that is because marriage exists to give us a picture of the covenant of grace. One writer puts it like this, that the woman's breathtaking claim of utter mutual possession in verse 16 plays directly on the covenant formula that pervades the Old Testament. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the core of all the theology solicited by this song. That's why this refrain will come up three more times or three times in, in total, because it is central to the song's meaning. Marital love is a spark of the divine flame of the gospel. The song will make that very point in chapter 8. And it's making that point here in the language of the covenant of grace that is woven throughout the book. And so that's ultimately why it's so important to, to tend to the foxes, because a spoiled marital vineyard that ignores them or neglects them may then distort the gospel picture that marriage is meant to paint. This mutual belonging, this this utter delight where each gives themselves to the other, loving them as their own body, pictures that same union that Martin Luther spoke of. Where the rich and divine bridegroom takes a poor, undeserving bride that adorns her with his goodness, takes upon himself all that is hers and bestows upon her all that is his. Is that not what Christ has done for us in the gospel? My beloved is mine, and I am his. His righteousness, his glory, his father, all are mine. My sin, my guilt, my shame, my damnation are his. We are united together in mutual delight. A union that is not yet consummated... It is, as I said earlier, that we already enjoy foretastes of at the Lord's table. Sweet foretastes of, of the fruit of the vine that we will drink anew in his Father's kingdom, enjoying those tender grapes of verse 15. 
He gives himself to us, gives us his body. And we entrust ourselves to him saying, I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, in life and in death, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. That joyous confession of the bride in verse 16 is to be ours. It is the church's confession corporately as the bride of Christ, but also a confession that every individual believer must take on their lips. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I think that's one of the reasons why we we so desperately need this song. Because sometimes we can can fall into thinking, and perhaps us in particular, that that the Christian life is is just all about having all of our our theological ducks in a row, or just all about keeping these, these commandments in dutiful obedience, but we forget that the song, which Scripture itself tells us is the greatest song, is a song that speaks to our affections. Why, when I sent in the bulletin information, I didn't call it the Song of Solomon, but I gave it the title that Song of Songs 1 verse 1 gives it. It's the Song of Songs. It's the greatest song. Like the, the Holy of Holies, or the King of Kings, or Lord of Lords speaks of the, the superlative nature of the one of whom it speaks. This song, Scripture tells us, is the greatest song. Of the 1,005 songs that, that the Bible tells us Solomon wrote, this is his number one hit, and not just his, but this is the greatest song in, in all of Scripture. It is the song of all songs. And it's a song that speaks to our affections. It's a song that is calling us to join in the chorus and say with the bride, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Not only must the bride of Christ say that collectively, but every one of us must be able to say that individually. And if you cannot say that, then you may not know him. This story is about much more than King Solomon. And I think we we, we know that intuitively as we read elsewhere in the Old Testament of some of Solomon's escapades with with relation to marriage and the Sabbath commandment. This is not ultimately a book about Solomon's love life, but this is a book about the, the idealized marriage where the greater than Solomon, the son of David, takes a bride to himself. Leaping over mountains in verse 8, leaving heaven, leaving his father to to cleave to his bride. He he looks at longingly in verse 9 and says, come away, my beautiful one, my friend. The friend of sinners is proposing nothing less than eternal marriage to his bride, whose face to him is lovely, whose voice to him is sweet, whose vineyard he will cultivate and remove any and all obstacles to union with him, that she might be able to say, I belong to him And he belongs to me. That ultimately is what this story is about. The drama of love depicted in this poem is fulfilled and transcended in the gospel. That, by the way, is is why throughout the history of the church, this book has been a favorite of so many of the saints. I remember reading a couple of years ago, I think it was between the periods of about 1517 and 1565 or so, that first generation of the Reformation. You know, we often think of a book like Romans or, or Galatians as being those, those uh, reformational documents. I think in that period of time, there were about maybe 
be six commentaries written on Romans and Galatians compared to 27 on the Song of Songs. Because this, this song, this book, so beautifully illustrates that, that Reformation doctrine. That's why Luther, as he was writing those, those three famous treatises, um, it, it was the language of the Song of Songs, this picture of Christ as the bridegroom that he turned to as describing, better than anywhere else, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, where the royal bridegroom and shepherd king who feeds his flock, who is greater than Solomon, comes to his bride of the incarnation, pursues her, and woos her, and invites her to marry him. And though the forces of evil threaten that union, he will overcome them and claim her as his own. That's the story that this song sings. It's the soundtrack of redemption, as some have called it, and it's inviting us to join the chorus in faith and repentance, not just corporately, but every one of us. The stunning offer of his hand in marriage in verse 10 and verse 13 is the offer before each of us. We are that sin-tattered girl that Luther spoke of, but the king condescends to make us share in his life and we respond to his overture of grace and say, my beloved is mine and I am his. Perhaps some of you have never done that. Or perhaps some of you have, have simply uh, gone through the motions of coming to church and, and standing when you're told to stand, reciting the creed when you're told to recite it, singing when you're told to sing, but you have never felt anything near the utter delight the bride feels in verse 16. This song is given to make your heart sing, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And not just to sing of the joy of belonging to him, but, but also to sing with the bride in verse 17, Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be as a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. This is our, our third point. He has proposed marriage, and now she is saying, Come back quickly. If we were to come into, into chapter 3, if you were to read on this afternoon into the, the next part of this song, there's going to be a period of, of separation between them in 3 verses 1 to 5, where the, the king will then arrive on his wedding day in 3 verse 6, which means then that, that this petition from the, the bride-to-be for him to hurry back as a gazelle is a plea for a short betrothal. She's saying, hurry up, just as, as you came leaping over the mountains in verse 8. Do so again, and don't waste any time. Let us catch the foxes, yes, let us make the necessary preparations, and then let us become one. She is joyfully yearning for his return. Beloved, as we think about this song within the, the greater drama of redemption, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we share in her longing. The royal bridegroom from heaven has come once and betrothed us to himself. He's coming again. Do we share in the eagerness of the bride saying, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Do we yearn for the consummation of that union that is promised in verse 16 where the, the mutual belonging and indwelling that takes place in marriage will give way to the, the reality where he will be in us and we in him enjoying the sweet, intoxicating joy of his love that is better than wine, that for which we were made. That's where this song is heading. 
which, by the way, is, is why in, in the, the last verse of, of the song, in 8 verse 14, she urges him again to, to hurry back. The, the, the song ends on a note of longing and anticipation, reminding us that that which, which, which we were made for, that which we were, were, were ultimately longing for, is not going to be satisfied in this life or in any earthly marriage, but it, it points beyond itself. It is transcendent. That's where this song is heading, lifting our gaze heavenward for the return of the bridegroom. Behold, he comes. Even as she delights in his coming in verse 8 and longs for it in verse 17, where he will leap as a gazelle on mountains of Bether. Perhaps some of you, uh, maybe you have a Bible with a map or an atlas in the back and you've been, you've been nervously searching for, for Mount Bether since we read that in 2 verse 17 and you can't find it, well, that's, that's because Mount Bether isn't an actual mountain. This is a euphemism where she's, she's inviting him to delight in, in a certain part of her body. If you have the ESV in front of you, the ESV says cleft mountains. She is inviting him here to enjoy her body once he returns and, and they're wed. And again, the song puts this delicately, not crassly. But we don't want to miss the point. Upon the return of the bridegroom, there will be intimate, intoxicating love. And so it is for the church. When her bridegroom returns, a far sweeter union will be enjoyed. As this song takes us more deeply into the sensual, it does so to make us understand the sacred. The mystery of marriage where Christ takes us to himself. As this song takes us more deeply into the essential, it does so to make us understand the sacred. There's no denying, as you come to a chapter, a section like chapter 4, chapter 7, that this, this book is, is dealing with the sensual. And there's sometimes this debate, is this, is this book about Christ and the church, or, or is this some kind of, of um, handbook for, for marriage, or, or even um, the marriage bed? That's a, that's a false dichotomy. What the book is, it's, it's about Christ and the gospel. And yet it's, it's teaching us about the sacred through the, the sensual, that, that we might understand the, the depth of, of the union that we experience with Christ. This book takes us more deeply into the sensual to make us understand the sacred, the mystery of marriage where Christ takes us to himself. So to just close with a couple of applications. We are to long for the coming of Jesus as a bride-to-be waits for her groom to whisk her away. We are to long for his coming, and we are to rejoice in his voice, the preaching of the word. We are to find our very identity in belonging to him, and like a, a young man readying himself for marriage to catch those foxes that would spoil our relationship with him both as a church, catching those foxes of false teaching, moralism, theological pride, or, or a cold orthodoxy. The fact that the language of a vineyard is, is often applied um, to, to the, the, the corporate people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, as it was in Psalm 80 that we sang earlier. And the language of foxes is often applied, as it is in the book of Ezekiel, to false prophets. And so there is an application here for the church to be on guard. 
but we're also to be catching those little foxes in our own lives, like sexual sin, that not only hinder our community with Christ and, and spoil the vines by which the sweet wine of his love is enjoyed, but, but they also distort our understanding of his self-giving spousal love in the gospel. May this song lift our gaze heavenward. And may the heavenly reorient our view of the earthly, that more and more our marriages and our our preparation for marriage and our understanding of marriage, the gift of, of sexuality, might reflect the gospel truth of verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his. And as we come to know more and more our sin and our shortcomings in this regard, may we turn to the heavenly bridegroom who gives us his righteousness and calls us his own. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ left heaven, leaping over mountains as a gazelle to seek us out, to cast his loving gaze upon us and call us friends. One person has said that the eternal Son of God condescended from, from heaven to, to cross the tracks and go to the, the wrong side of town. To by great suffering win for himself a bride of his own choosing. To come by grace and invite us to come away with him, leaving and cleaving to him in covenant, saying, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Lord, we thank you for how marriage pictures that. We pray that husbands among us would cherish their wives as the bridegroom does here in this song. We pray also for those who are married and finding foxes in their vineyard, or those who are preparing for marriage, that you would surround them with loving and wise mentors and elders to catch those little foxes that would spoil the vines, not just so that their marriages would be more enjoyable, but ultimately that Christ would be seen more clearly in them. That is our prayer, Lord, in particular, as we look around at the world outside of us and, and see the institution of marriage in, in uh, so many ways under attack and, and see those distortions of it creeping even into the church. Lord, we value this institution. We care about these things because we want Christ and the, the glorious mystery of union with him to be seen more clearly in our marriages. So we pray that that would be the case, that as we lift our gaze, even through a book like this, to behold the heavenly, that would so orient us even in our earthly relationships, like marriage, to love as Christ has loved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.